Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called A Generous Dispenser of Divine Mercy. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November the 6th, 2016. In the Gospel this week, we read in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Back on September the 4th, at his Sunday Mass in St. Peter's Square in Rome, Pope Francis canonized Agnes Gonjean Bojahu, better known as Mother Teresa, as a saint in the Catholic Church. Officially, she'll henceforth be called St. Teresa of Calcutta, although Pope Francis admitted that she'll probably just be known as Mother Teresa. Speaking in Latin, Francis said that, quote, after due deliberation and frequent prayer for divine assistance, and having sought the counsel of many of our brother bishops, we declare and define Blessed Teresa of Calcutta to be a saint, and we enroll her among the saints, decreeing that she is to be venerated as such by the whole church. For All Saints Day, this Tuesday, November the 1st, I've been reflecting on the life and legacy of this remarkable believer. To do that, I read the new book, A Call to Mercy, that was released on August the 16th to coincide with Teresa's canonization and also the Vatican's Year of Mercy. The book is a compilation of writings by Teresa, by the leader of her Case for Sainthood, an editor of an earlier book called Come Be My Light, published back in 2007. Mother Teresa was born in Skopje, the capital city of Macedonia, although part of the Ottoman Empire at the time. She was born to Albanian parents who were deeply Catholic, and as a little girl, she felt a strong call of God upon her life to love Jesus. So it was no surprise when she joined the Sisters of Our Lady of Loreto in Dublin, Ireland at the age of 18. A year later, Agnes was sent to Jar Darjeeling, India, where she taught young girls. By that time, she had completed her vows taken the name Teresa after Saints Teresa of Avila and Teresa of Lisieux, and was sent to Calcutta College for further studies. For the next 15 years, she taught history and geography at St. Mary's High School. It was in the context of Calcutta's unimaginable poverty that on September the 10th, 1946, at the age of 36, Teresa took her so-called famous train ride. Traveling from Calcutta to Darjeeling for a retreat, God spoke very directly to her. Later, she would write that this experience was more than a strong sense of call or even a burden. Rather, Jesus spoke very directly to her in voices and visions, saying, Would you not help these poorest of the poor? One year later, in August 1947, 
She left the convent to live in the slums with the wretched poor and dying. She traded her traditional nun's habit for the ordinary dress of an Indian woman, her now famous white sari with a blue stripe. Mother Teresa died of heart failure on September the 5th, 1997. In 2012, her Missionaries of Charity had over 4,500 nuns serving the poorest of the poor in 133 countries. I'll always remember visiting the Sisters of Mercy home for the destitute in dying in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, back in February 2005. I was awed by the strength and grace of Sister Ignacia from Slovakia as she ministered to screaming kids, teenage mothers with newborn babies, the severely retarded, and adults dying of AIDS. At their orphanage, 400 HIV-positive children experience the love of God. Mother Teresa's many honors included the 1979 Nobel Peace Prize. At her burial on September 10, 1997, 51 years to the day after that famous train ride, dignitaries from two dozen countries attended. But, befitting her love of the poor, half of the seats in the stadium were reserved for those outcasts whom she had served. And similarly, at her canonization on September the 4th, nuns from the Missionaries of Charity led a processional of 1,500 homeless people through the gates of the Vatican to sit in seats of honor along with 120,000 people who had gathered for the event. As an icon of God's mercy, said Pope Francis in his homily, Mother Teresa bowed down before those who were spent, left to die on the side of the road, seeing in them their God-given dignity. She made her voice heard before the powers of the world, so that they might recognize their guilt for the crimes of poverty they themselves created. And in case anyone missed his point, Francis repeated himself, the crimes of poverty. Mother Teresa, in all aspects of her life, was a generous dispenser of divine mercy, making herself available for everyone through her welcome in defense of human life, those unborn and those abandoned and discarded. For Mother Teresa, mercy was the salt that gave flavor to her work. It was the light which shone in the darkness of the many who no longer had tears to shed for their poverty and suffering. Mother Teresa always instructed her sisters to do small things with great love. That's a good beginning to living like a saint, material acts of mercy done in love. But there's another aspect to Teresa's sainthood, said Francis. She not only shared the material poverty of the poor, she also entered their spiritual darkness. And that's the theme of her controversial book back in 2007, Come Be My Light. 
It was published to coincide with the 10th anniversary of her death. And in it, letter after letter documents the deep darkness that plagued St. Teresa for 50 years. She describes her interior struggles as an absence of God's presence, an emptiness, loneliness, pain, spiritual dryness, or lack of consolation. She writes, There is so much contradiction in my soul, no faith, no love, no zeal. I find no words to express the depths of my darkness. My heart is so empty, so full of darkness. I don't pray any longer. The work holds no joy, no attraction, no zeal. I have no faith. I don't believe. And what about her angelic demeanor that so many people experience? She says, the smile is a big cloak that covers a multitude of pains. My cheerfulness is a cloak by which I cover the emptiness and misery. I deceive people with this weapon. Time and time again in this book, Teresa admitted to her confessors that she felt like a quote-unquote shameless hypocrite for teaching and preaching one thing while experiencing something far different in her own life. And so, a second sign of saintliness. Teresa wrote, If I'm going to be a saint, I'm going to be a saint of darkness, and I'll be asking from heaven to be the light of those who are in darkness on earth. Mother Teresa was never bereft of an intense longing for God, and this was an important telltale sign. Eventually, she determined that her spiritual darkness was not an obstacle to her call from God to serve the poorest of the poor, but instead central to that call. In her darkness, she identified with the poor and shared in the sufferings of Christ himself. Given these two signs of saintliness, the material and the spiritual, the book a Call to Mercy is organized around the seven corporal works of mercy, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, heal the sick, visit the imprisoned, and bury the dead. And then the seven spiritual works of mercy, counsel the doubtful, instruct the ignorant, admonish sinners, Comfort the afflicted, forgive offenses willingly, bear wrongs patiently, and pray for the living and the dead. In some, said Pope Francis in his September 4th homily, may this tireless worker of mercy help us to increasingly understand that our only criterion for action is gratuitous love free from every ideology and all obligations, offered freely to everyone without distinction of language, culture, race, or religion. Mother Teresa's mission to the urban and existential peripheries remains for us today an eloquent witness to God's closeness to the poorest of the poor, said St. Francis. 
And so today, he continued, I pass on this emblematic figure of womanhood and of consecrated life to the whole world of volunteers. May she be your model of holiness. For books this week, I review a title by Carlo Rovelli, an Italian physicist. The name of the book, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. New York, Riverhead Books, 2016. This little book is 86 pages. This little book, says physicist Carlo Rovelli, is written for those who know little or nothing about modern science. Well, that would include me. Even though I still don't understand lots of this book, I was very glad I read it. Rovelli writes with awe and humility at the majesty and mystery of our cosmos. The seven little chapters, each of which is about eight pages long, originally appeared as a series in the Italian newspaper Il Sole 24 Ore. Rovelli begins with Einstein's three famous papers in 1905, which, after further work, became known as the General Theory of Relativity in 1915. In its breathtaking simplicity, Einstein's work on space, time, and gravity remains what Rovelli calls unequal. Chapter 2 considers the second pillar of modern physics, quantum mechanics, which, although it has been experimentally verified, remains shrouded in mystery and incomprehensibility even a century after its discovery. Chapter 3 considers the unimaginable scale and scope of our macrocosmos, while Chapter 4 considers our microcosmos of electrons, quarks, photons, and gluons. But then comes a paradox. The twin pillars of general relativity in quantum mechanics, writes Rovelli, cannot both be right, at least in their current forms, because they contradict each other." End quote. And so chapter 5 considers the efforts to solve this mystery. After a chapter on the heat of black holes, a final chapter considers our own human selves. Who are we? What are we? What is our place in the cosmos? What is consciousness or free will? Ravelli writes, if we are special, we are only special in the way that everyone feels themselves to be, like every mother is for her child, but certainly not for the rest of nature. I don't begrudge Ravelli this materialist and rather depressing, depressing conclusion. Left to itself and to its self-imposed narrow methodology, it's all that science can say or maybe even should say. But science isn't the only way to know, or the only thing worth knowing. Matters of meaning, value, and beauty, for example, lie outside its scope. And so, even though it's only half a loaf, 
I was still grateful for this gem of a book. Once again, Carlo Rovelli, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. It's a little book, just 86 pages long. For movies this week, I review a film called First Contact, The Lost Tribe of the Amazon, 2016. Technically, this film is in Brazil. In June of 2014, four men from an uncontacted tribe deep in the Amazon rainforest of Brazil emerged on a riverbank in order to make contact with outside civilization on the opposite bank. The moment was caught in crude film footage that went viral on YouTube. The four men were from the Sapanahuha tribe. Nine months after this first contact, the Brazilian anthropologist Carlo Morelles made the eight-day journey upstream to renew contact with the tribe. There's an ominous undertone to the encounter with mutual fear, incomprehension, and suspicion. But 35 of these tribes' people were later resettled by the Brazilian government. What drove them to make contact with the outside world? Very simple. Rain, hunger, disease, sleepless nights. A jaguar killed and ate my grandmother, says one. They unabashedly talk about how they love the clothes, the pots, the pans, and the shoes. The documentary then follows a similar contact with a different tribe called the Moscow. Is it dangerous? The anthropologist Morellis is asked. Yes, of course it's dangerous. But in his view, such contacts are inevitable and even good. Human survival requires change. This nature documentary is only 49 minutes long and would make for excellent family film night. I watched it on Netflix streaming. Once again, the title of the film, First Contact, Lost Tribe of the Amazon, from 2016. And finally, for poetry by Denise Levertov. Denise Levertov lived from 1923 to 1997. The poem is called The Servant Girl at Emmaus, which of course takes place in Luke chapter 24. But this poem in particular is about a painting by Velazaquez of the servant girl at Emmaus. And so Levertov describes the painting about the gospel, the servant girl at Emmaus. She listens, listens, holding her breath. Surely that voice is his, the one who had looked at her once across the crowd, as no one had ever looked. Had he seen her? Had spoken as if to her? Surely those hands were his, taking the platter of bread from hers just now. Hands he'd laid on the dying and made them well. 
Surely that face. The man they'd crucified for sedition and blasphemy. The man whose body disappeared from its tomb. The man, it was rumored, now some women had seen this morning, alive. Those who had brought this stranger home to their table don't recognize yet with whom they sit. But she in the kitchen, absently touching the wine jug she's to take in, a young black servant intently listening, swings round and sees the light around him and is sure. Denise Levertov, The Servant Girl at Emmaus. It's a poem about a painting. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 6, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.